ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this Thoughts on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I will be joined later on by Craig Eastman, Andrew Tavendale, but first a, a little bit of a mea culpa for various reasons. We've not been able to bring you our regularly scheduled episode at this time. So we've decided to take a little bit of a walk down memory lane with this very special episode. Yeah, sadly it's a clip show. Uh, But this is a selection of some of our favourite reviews from the first year of our podcast. So uh, we do know from listener statistics that a lot of you have been joining us lately and welcome aboard. Uh, We hope you find something new to enjoy here. And if you have been with us from the start, well firstly thank you very much for that. And secondly you are excused for this class and you may go and contemplate something beautiful for an hour and a half instead. We're going to start off with a review from our December 2015 show on Takeshi Kitano and we're going to talk about Violent Cop. The first film that he both directed and played that bit parts and I think this might be his first major role, certainly in anything dramatic rather than uh, comedic, mm-hmm. uh, it was of course the aforementioned Violent Cop. Perhaps worth doing a little bit of scene setting here. I think I, I believe I still saw this when, first when I was in towards the end of my high school career. And in those days, we had in Britain access to four television channels, maybe five. I forget if Channel Five had launched by that point, but, but films Only were just. Not, I think films were not thick on the ground unless you had satellite, which or cable, which I didn't. Mm. So trying to find any film that was a little bit out of the ordinary it was it's kind of kind of difficult. You were left limited to when something like BBC Two showed mm. some of their movie drone stuff that was fronted by Alex Cox, or um, I think it then became Mark Cousins. I seem to remember Mark Kermode doing some of them, but I may be misremembering that. I only remember the Alex Cox years because that introduced me to Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of, a lot of interesting films like that, and the, like the uh, Cronenberg stuff, which was, of course, uh, like Scanners, I think, was the first time I saw that was part of a movie drone yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. So it was also the time when I first started seeing some anime, which uh, at the time was uh, very influential for me. Things like Akira was shown on Channel 4. Channel 4 sort of were the only sort of media outlet in the UK to get anything like an early handle on that stuff, right? We, yeah. were, we were picking up stuff like, say, like Akira and some of the episodic stuff like Cyber City yeah. um, uh, showing late night on Channel 4, but like really late night. Yeah, Legend of the Four Kings, Wicked oh. City, all that stuff. It was almost impossible. I mean, it's certainly for me at the time, uh, we had in Falkirk, our, our hometown, we had one cinema that had three screens and was not <laughs> going to be showing anything like this sort of art house stuff. But even <laughs> you, can, you can get in multiplexes these days, actually, folks like uh, Sydney World having a bit more of a broader outlook, mm. but you, you couldn't get that. I didn't have the, even if I they did show it. I didn't have the money to go and see that or rent any of the films like that. So mm. uh, it was limited to what was showing on TV. And it, lo and behold, at some point, Channel 4 did a Japanese film little series, which included some stuff that has haunted me to the day, things like Shinji Tsukamoto's uh, Tetsuo and Tetsuo 2, and then mm. Violent Cop, which blew my mind as mm-hmm. a kid. Absolutely astonishing film. It took me a long time to parse Violent Cop. I, I must have watched that VHS... I don't even think the first time I watched that, I watched it all the way through. I kind of had to give up and go back again. Yeah. Violet Cop is, is as interesting a film as any in that, um, and it, to this day it's actually still, I think, probably my favourite Takeshi film. Um, some of that's probably down to the whole honeymoon thing. Mm. Um, but basically, in, in I suppose the closest comparison you could draw with a Western movie is I suppose it's, a, it's kind of a Japanese update of Dirty Harry. Yes. But that's not to say that you will recognise much of Dirty Harry in it. Um, it very much establishes Takeshi's trademark style, um, mm. certainly so far as, as, as his um, Yakuza and or sort of gangster movies um, are concerned. We'll touch on some of the other stuff he's done later on because he does have two very distinct veins of, of filmmaking. But 
as pertains to his gangster stuff, he kind of sets his stall out here early. And I think was it, it was Kinji Fukasaku who was supposed to originally yes. direct this, but fell ill. Yes. So Katano basically took the reins, um, did a fairly heavy script rewrite, um, and we've ended up with this mesmeric piece about a police officer who is very quick to use violence as, as, a, as a tool, <laughs> as leverage in pretty much any situation. And while he's undergoing an investigation into a series of homicides which are related to, um, to drug dealing in, uh, in his home city, he discovers that one of his colleagues with whom he's quite close has actually um, been supplying drugs from within the police. So he ends up being murdered and Azuma finds himself torn between sort of that situation with, with pursuing the guys who are responsible for um, murdering his corrupt partner, but also the fact that his uh, sister has been kidnapped as well and is being used in many senses of the word by uh, one of the mm. guys who's responsible. And I think the reason I found this so difficult to parse, there are several reasons. One, at this point in my life, and I'm thinking I must have been around 15, 16, yeah. I hadn't understood that filmmaking could be quite this bleak. Yes. <laughs> and to this day, I have in my personality a fairly nihilistic bent uh, to a certain degree and in certain situations, which I hold this film directly responsible <laughs> yeah. for. It's the first film I think I saw where I understood that in storytelling, sometimes the best story is one where nobody gets away clean, yeah. where there are absolutely no happy endings to be had. And that actually violence begets violence in a very real sense. And that if you are willing to use that level of violence upon people, you had better be prepared to receive a similar level yeah. of violence upon thyself. It's also the first time that I've really, it's kickstarted my appreciation of stillness in cinema as well. Yes. Because for all that um, Takeshi's gangster films rely, well, so I suppose the yin and yang of his gangster films is that he balances moments of, often unexpected, but almost always spectacular violence with great swathes of 35mm film, which essentially are just a copy and paste of one frame of his face. He's quite happy to let the camera sit mm. on his, his untwitching face for a good couple of minutes. That could be in any number of situations. He's very much a practitioner of stillness, which makes a very interesting contrast and actually makes those moments of violence, those punctuations of, uh, of violence, all the more spectacular. It's mesmerising in a way that one can't necessarily qualify all that well. Right from the off, you start seeing what his, uh, his, his auteurism is going to be, if you like. Uh, he, you can see that he's, you know, he said publicly, he's no fan of seeing people talk while the camera's swivelling around a room or anything like that. That's why you mm. get these very long shots of people conversing. There's nothing particularly going on. There's none of the, the kind of reverse face thing that you might have in quite a lot of the Western stuff. He's perfectly happy to have people just walk into the camera for about two minutes and then walk away from the camera for another three minutes. Mm -hmm. as, as long as that's sort of telling the, the kind of, it's hitting the pacing that, that he needs to get out the rest of the story. And I think, I wonder how much of that comes from his, uh, his comedy background, because a lot of this film has, and it basically you can apply this to almost every film that he's done, has this incredible sense of timing in a way yeah. that, that really sort of punctuates the beats of the, the dramatic impulses of it much better than almost any Western film has seen to this point. 
not to say that there aren't them, of course, but uh, at this point in my career, I hadn't seen them. And this uh, really blew me away. Uh, the, 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 that's just the pacing of it, the way that it can be so still for so long and have lots of stretches where there's not really much going on. No, uh, not, even, not even dialogue. No, uh, another hallmark of Kateshi's style. I think he would be happier if he could just direct films with no dialogue in them at all. And he's come close to doing that on a few occasions and there's not really mm. an awful lot in Violent Cop. No. Uh, he would much rather explain things, as you say, just by facial expressions and little glances these things like that it's, he's far more subtle of a storyteller than you would think given the, the comedy background that he comes from he's absolutely that respect and sometimes even without the emotion bizarrely I mean I can think of a couple of scenes in Violent Pop one of them being I suppose the scene where um, someone attempts to stab him in the street and he will he'll be he'll quite happily have these scenes and again it's there's something absolutely mesmeric about it um, and it sounds a bizarre thing to say about something so intrinsically violent but there's a scene where a guy tries to stab him and he turns around and he grabs a hold of his knife <laughs> with his hand with his bare hand. Yeah. And the two of them stand there for a good sort of 10, 15 seconds, just staring unblinkingly at each other. And yeah. not just unblinkingly, but completely dispassionately. No care one way or another on, on either <laughs> of their faces, uh, except for the fact, I think the guy trying to stab him is chewing a matchstick, which he may continue chewing or he may, he may <laughs> sort of pause chewing it. I'm not sure. And it's, it's the strangest, strangest thing. And it's not even some sort of cultural divide. It's very much Takeshi's style. Um, and I've... It's it's not necessarily he's trying to say something through that. There's just something inherently cinematic about just in a situation like that, allowing the enormity of what's happening almost to disappear into the background and just to focus on just yeah. to focus on two really interesting faces. And this this essentially like a massive battle of wills, but just completely unspoken, completely silent, almost emotionless. It's bizarre. Yeah, it does occasionally lapse into what would seem to be a kind of something stolen from Western films. It's, it's almost like he, he, he will do a Mexican standoff, mm. uh, even if it's just people talking to each other, mm-hmm. which uh, somehow shouldn't work, but it really does. Uh, he manages to pull off this tremendous sense of drama from really nothing happening, which mm-hmm. is an incredible feat. Yeah, I hadn't seen anything at all like it at the time, and it just, uh, as I say, blew my doors of my mind apart. Yeah. I think in a lot of it is to do with the, the casting. I mean, I'm not sure how involved he is in the casting, but he's certainly worked with uh, one or two other actors regularly throughout his career. But whether or not he's directly involved, I'm not sure, but there's a real knack in his films for, for casting people, just really interesting characters to look at. Yeah. Um, as shallow as that sounds, a lot of even sort of incidental characters in these films, and I think about almost all of the characters in, in Violent Cop, he works with a group of actors who are just really fantastic at working with it and, and rolling with the way he likes to work. And who yeah. are equally as happy at sort of just minute upon minute of just stillness and silence. I think about the scene near the end of the film where the three guys are standing in the warehouse while um yeah. the chat, I forget his name, while he's loading the guns, telling them, look, he's coming. There's no yeah. point in running. Um, <laughs> this isn't going to work out well for any of us. And there's a good sort of two, three minutes where the guys are just standing there contemplating their fate and nobody's, <laughs> nobody's saying yeah. anything. There's a couple of thousand yard stairs there. And it's just, just this wonderful, wonderful sort of facial expression where yeah. Just, you you have to see it to understand it. Yeah, and if you've not seen it, this is this is perhaps a spoiler. But it, again, it's just an ending which blew my mind, which I was not expecting. You've mentioned the the, the bleakness mm. of it, which I don't think I'd seen anything quite so so uh, downbeat as this. But I mean, even no. the way it plays with your expectations and really it subverts what you would expect an ending like this to be, mm-hmm. because you may think this is all building to some sort of climactic showdown between the protagonist and the antagonist, and mm-hmm. actually, you know, you're wrong. Yeah. without spoiling it other parties intervene and you're, you're left with something that is in no way satisfying in the kind of narrative sense that it, you would expect it to be if, you, if this no. was a, a more conventionally plotted film but that really made it all the more impactful for me yeah, yeah. and also I think it touches on something that the, the, the lack of a happy ending thing also 
what's important is that as a viewer, you sort of implicitly understand that although that's not the ending maybe you were hoping for, and and whether or not you were actually rooting for Takeshi's character, um, as whether or not he's he's someone likable enough, despite his largely, I suppose, his good intentions as a police officer, um, the mechanics of how he goes about yeah. his work <laughs> don't necessarily make him sympathetic or likable in any way. But there's a very implicit understanding as a, as a member of the audience that although this might not be the ending you wanted, it's the ending that was deserved for all yes. of these people. Yeah. Um, and even to this day, I mean, just watching it again in the last couple of days there, for the first time in a few years, actually, I still was struck by just how how bleak an ending that is, and actually how just how mesmeric and well and well paced, and actually although it's although it's violent, also in in a lot of ways subtle um, and affecting that ending really is uh, even to this day. Having having seen having seen quite a few films now, which have I suppose tried to ape that style and um, that nihilistic sensibility, then yes, I think it still it still stands head and shoulders above a lot of those films, and it's still my favourite Takeshi film, I think. I would want to pick between it and other films for, for some of it, but uh, it's, it's certainly very high up there. In terms of impact that it's had on my life, uh, there's probably no other film that has affected what I watch in cinema or how I think about how cinema works mm. as Violent Cop has. And for that reason alone, it's, it's just a tremendous way to introduce yourself to Takeshi Kitano if you haven't done already. Thankfully, there's now a, a quarter-way decent DVD release. I don't think it's been able to release on Blu-ray. A lot of uh, Takeshi Kitano stuff is not available on Blu-ray, which is mm. a, a crying shame but yes if, if you have not seen it it's certainly well worth picking up and watching it's, a, it's an incredible bit of uh, filmmaking and uh, something that I think everyone really should be seeing. Yes I would agree I would agree and it's a great introduction to the style certainly of his his gangster movies. You will you will know after watching this film whether or not you are going to like Takeshi Kitano's work but mm. even if even if it's something that you don't necessarily gel with on a first viewing I would I would implore people to watch it again and, and see if they can pick up on the rhythm of it not to be patronising but there's definitely a rhythm and a style there that it might it might take a while for yeah. for people to to settle into that gear, but I think when you do, it's going to be massively rewarding and, and so unlike anything else out there that you'll have uh, you'll have come across in the mainstream. Our next review is from our January 2016 episode on David Lynch, the famed American author, one of our more popular episodes. Uh, so we hope you enjoy this as we start to talk about Eraserhead. We'll just dive in straight with the first film, uh, his first feature film, Eraserhead, which already has shown many of the hallmarks of the the Lynch experience, if you like. And and how. And how. Um, So shall I take it? Go. Yeah. Take it, boy. Um, Eraserhead, in which Jack Nance plays Henry Spencer, uh, an employee of a local printer's who lives his solitary life amongst an oppressive industrialist hellscape shot in muted black and white. Um, and you will know immediately by that sentence whether or not this film is going to appeal to you. <laughs> One day Henry answers the door of his apartment to Mary X, an ex-girlfriend, who invites Henry to dinner at her parents' house. Uh, once there, Henry is party to, amongst other things, a bizarre dinner of oozing baby chickens sudden amorous advances of Mary's mother and the revelation that Mary has in the interim betwixt the conclusion of her relationship with Henry given premature birth to his mutant child. If the first sentence didn't put you off, (laughs) uh, I'm wondering if you're still with us at the conclusion of the second. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Basically what follows is an intensely unsettling and unhinged, uh, unhinged procession of events that begins with the strain placed on the now newlywed Jack and Mary's relationship uh, by the incessantly unsettled infant, progressing through occasional glimpses of the theatre stage, apparently hidden behind Henry's radiator, (laughs) 
scenes of an astral body tumbling through the void and interacting with fetus-like organisms, sparse conversations in the hallway betwixt Henry and his sultry neighbour, and occasional sojourns into the decaying cityscape through which Henry ambles, often chaplain-like, I felt, Mm. to the constant strains of a noise-driven ambience that unsettles and infuriates in equal measure. If all of that sounds indecipherable to you, then that's because Lynch's <laughs> debut feature is uh, a maniac's manifesto <laughs> that begins under a layer of abstraction and spirals increasingly into unfathomable insanity with each progressive frame. <laughs> Unlike Lynch's later movies where he breaks his audience in more subtly, a razorhead kind of asks you within 30 seconds, are you on board with this? Yeah. And while that's a question posed by most of Lynch's movies, I also feel like most of them wait at least 60 seconds before <laughs> setting out that stall. Um, it's kind of, it's long revered as the quintessential midnight movie, which is which is where it sort of garnered popularity. Lynch spent something like six years yeah. making this film. At least five, yeah. Yeah, at least five, um, during which process his director of cinematography died. <laughs> um, <laughs> Whether or not that's related directly to the <laughs> film, I'm not sure. One in the world of Lynch, nothing is uh, nothing is impossible, and it sort of garnered this massive, massive cult status through midnight movie showings before it became, or rather, it asserted itself as as a classic of modern cinema. You will know within five minutes whether you are going to need a second pass at this, and I most certainly do. Certainly, before I feel mm. even remotely qualified in passing judgment. I feel like I came to a Razorhead with a huge burden of expectation. It's one of those touchstone films that really kind of defor- defines the modern lexicon of cinema. And uh, based on based on my enjoyment of a great deal of Lynch's other works to to varying degrees, I assumed that I was going to come to a Razorhead and immediately click with it. Yeah, and it is by far his most outlandish movie. I think, it, if anything, it suffers from. This is my first film and I'm going to throw every idea I've ever had at the screen um, syndrome. But I really, I didn't engage with the Razorhead. I'm going to be honest. I don't feel like I enjoyed it this no. on this first viewing. And you know, it sounds yeah, it sounds like you might be in agreement. Yeah, it's, it's easily the hardest of Lynch's films to watch. And given what else this man has done, that is actually saying something. Well, yeah. um, it is a film I have struggled to engage with on a number of occasions. It's... I believe I first picked up a copy of this uh, sometime during my student career, uh, having seen some of his rather more accessible stuff at that point. Uh, and given the reputation like yourself, I was expecting it to be you know, something really quite special, but I found quite a lot of it to be actually a bit dull. Uh, I, I, I found it very difficult to engage with anything at all. It's one of the few times I've just admitted defeat and stopped watching it. Uh, indeed, until a few days ago, I hadn't watched it all the way through to the end. Uh, oh. Twice, at least, than I clearly remember, I've started watching this with all good intentions and just given up after forty minutes or so. Uh, this last time was the I felt compelled to watch it all the way through to the end, but I don't really think it's uh, either enlightened me a great deal or has uh, really enhanced my enjoyment of it. It's if you're there's a very common uh, position that you could take about David Lynch, and that is that his films are nonsense. Right, there's, there is. It's hard to argue against. Yes, I mean, right. You can. It's of course aided by this ethos because he is so impenetrable. He will not give any information away. He doesn't even. he doesn't like talking about his films. I mean, exactly. Not least, not least of all, right? Because when approached about himself, more often than not, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, "Eh." "Yes." And you know, he's he's one of these characters. I mean, he. 
he doesn't like talking about pretty much anything. He, he, I believe he's some early. Uh, it's, I was reading something about his earlier years. He, he he almost didn't talk for the first twenty years of his life. He's you know very minimalist in what he tries to say, and that obviously comes across in all the dialogue and throughout his work uh, works. But it's especially prevalent here. Uh, a great many elements in his films are just simply no, never explained. They're inexplicable in the the very real sense of just there is there is no way this would happen. This could happen. There's no logical explanation for any of it, and it's not a f- films that are based on logic. But we're, you can't we're use that as a, a lot of this. No, of course we're yeah. going to spend a lot of this podcast talking about dream logic. Yes, which is the thing that he sort of evokes the most, but. This isn't so much of a, a dream as a as a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly pictured more as some sort of well, I mean, it's it's psychological horror, I guess, more than anything else, mm. because there's very few things that are outright scary apart from just this unsettling, yeah. unnerving tone that's created in, in quite effectively in several places. Uh, but it's it's not enough to really hang the rest of the film on, and it is too outre for the rest of it. There's so much there's so much things going on that that just kind of bring you out of it that that that, that work against the the kind of oppressive nature that, that it's trying to build up in places where I think it might be more effective. Uh, there, there's too I, many I silly wanna... bits. There's too. I don't know why yeah. there's a. I don't know why there's a theatre between the the radiator and there, and I don't know why there's a woman that looks a bit like a hamster singing there. I don't. There's so just things that are thrown in that have no no meaning uh, and no symbolism or anything like that. And for that, I one, know. It's a bit weak. And I know that the the sort of the accepted reading of this is that it's about Lynch's fear of of becoming a father, which is kind of poo pooed by the fact that he was a, he was a father before he started producing this. So perhaps more uh, a, a reflex to having become a father and a fear of of fatherhood. And I can kind of get where people are coming with that. But with anything that David Lynch does, like you say, he refuses to engage in discourse around any of his films and, and on any number of occasions has basically said it's whatever you want it to be. And if if he himself refuses to define his movies as anything, it's very, very difficult to accept any one particular notion of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, you're really taking everything on faith. I mean, I mean, the opening of this movie... I've made I made notes as I was watching this, right? And I I, I would also um I would also uh, give you the caveat that when I say I didn't really engage with this movie, I was watching it on an iPad, which is it's never going to be the the most ideal situation to watch a movie in. Yeah, and I'm sure one um, that Lynch is specifically called out against doing on many occasions. He's a- yes, exactly. <laughs> so I will I will pay this film the courtesy of going back and watching it on uh, on a on a bigger screen. Um, but literally like six minutes of nothing for an opening. It could could be a meteor spinning through space. It could be David Lynch's lunch. Um, <laughs> either way, I and probably he himself would implore you not to think too much about it. It's like like a lot of his other cinema, and actually, actually more. I feel like he kind of does a bit of a leapfrog from this, and he comes back around. He sort of he sort of goes to a slightly tamer material for a lot of his studio stuff, and then sort of comes back to this more pervasive sort of dream environment in more recent films but you you will always you will always find that a david lynch film seems to be going for atmosphere or certainly in most cases anyway um where he hasn't adapted his work from from other material there's this there's this sense of there's this atmosphere that i feel he's trying to aim for in a lot of his films and the difference with the razor head is that it seems to want to attack you with that atmosphere rather yeah. than envelop you in it. It, it it's like he wants it to be this thing there's there's this pervasive background audio all through the film that's this sort of industrial mishmash of, of noise. And like sometimes it resolves itself visually 
like there's a sound that sounds like someone tuning in a radio to like a just off station that's broadcasting solely screeching bats and that <laughs> that turns out to be a litter of pups suckling at their mother's teat right and then other times it doesn't such as like throughout the early part of the film where he's in uh, i want to say in his own apartment and uh, or possibly possibly just his girlfriend's apartment or his ex-girlfriend's parents house there's there's this background noise which sounds I've made a note here it sounds sounds akin to a woman being tortured at the far end of a mile long copper pipe. <laughs> it's it's this really it, it like he really wants to unsettle you with this and he's throwing this stuff at you and trying to and I almost feel like he overbuilds the atmosphere in this one and I, like I I almost like completely disengaged from it because it was too dense and it was too oppressive. Yeah, it's a hard ask. Um, in all the ones that of sort of a similar ilk that I enjoy your you're eased far more gently into it and it has a time mm. to kind of creep up around you and you're it's at its best when it sneaks up on you and you don't really uh you're not aware of what's going to the thing that's about to unfold until it's already too late and you're already sucked into it whereas this is just slamming your head first into a brick wall from the first frame yeah. and it's it's a hard ask um mm. it's now i've got to say i don't like Eraserhead. I don't think it's uh, anything like his best work. However, as a historical document and as a, a manifesto mm. of what he's going to do, it's certainly important. Uh, you can see an awful lot of things in here that he will return to time and time yep. again. Uh, yep. Arguably much better. However, it's uh, certainly... You can't argue the fact that he's uh, setting out his stall early on in his career and showing you exactly what he intends to do when he gets uh, autonomy to do it. Yeah. Uh, and don't get me yeah. wrong, there are bits of this that works, but where I where I find it tends to work the best are in the slightly more subtle interactions. Like the, um, if you put aside all the sort of perverse imagery that permeates this, the the couple of exchanges that he has with his neighbour across the hall, hmm. who's this amazing, like stunning woman who is who I, I, it's so difficult to define. But the inter his interaction with her is really subtle and there's this almost menacing tone uh, to the way in which she's... Yeah. It's, uh, the best way I can describe it is like a menacing sexuality yeah. to the way that she engages with him. And very... Like, this woman is only ever lit by apparently a single candle. Yeah. Like, if you're... If you're <laughs> I'm try I was trying to think how to describe it earlier and the only way I can think is if you're a fan of film photography and you know anything about Ansel Adams' uh, zone system, this woman is exposed constantly at zone two. <laughs> if you understand that, there you go. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. This really strange... And there's there's a very... When he's being subtly unnerving like that in in um, Henry's uh, interaction with, um, with his neighbour, I find it's more successful than when he's throwing the oblique imagery at, at the screen. There's obviously, I mean, the, 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 the mutant child is, is obviously its own thing and it's like indecipherable. Yeah, um, absolutely. But but the the sort of constantly repeated imagery of the sort of the, the theme of the theta, the fetus, the as you mentioned, like on the stage there's a there's a, a performance which is repeated to varying degrees um by a young woman with bizarrely puffed out cheeks <laughs> who I kind of I almost want to say that I almost took away from it that she was supposed to be his daughter or like his child were it to develop to adulthood or something like that. I don't that is a wild guess on my part. But the stuff like that, like the bizarreness of there being a, a, a theatre stage behind his radiator and stuff, it's just just it's just far too oblique. Yeah, um, it's, it's partly what I find infuriating in the Lynch films that I don't like is that it's it's so open ended to interpretation that it, mm. you know, and by design this could mean anything, but because it could mm. mean anything, it actually means nothing. 
Yeah. And I get a lot of it is it, it's it's like an entire film full of symbols that, but not symbolic of anything, just symbolic in in general. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really wind up saying anything at the end of the day. Um, it's a great thing to analyze. I mean, it's almost like it's bait for um, you know film criticism classes because you can go to town on almost any Lynch film with any interpretation yeah. you like. And to be fair, it's probably you as valid as anyone else down for it. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. but it's. It, it it doesn't help. Um, in a lot of ways, I am quite a traditional film goer. I like stories. I like stories to have beginnings, middles, and ends that more or less tie up. And oh. for an awful lot of things in June, uh, sorry, in uh, David Lynch's uh, work, you're not going to get that. You're you're going to get something that, is, that can make more sense on emotional levels rather than narrative. And some the best of his films achieve that. And when it does manage to have all that tied together, it works fantastically well and better than you know almost any other bit of cinema you'll see. But when it when it whiffs, it, it becomes a big steaming pile of nonsense. And it's very easy at some point for your brain just to go, nope, not playing with this anymore. And just, just watching it for the objective nonsense that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean that particularly pejoratively, but it, is, it doesn't make sense. Sense uh, mm-hmm. and a razorhead's kind of a, the poster child for me for that. It, it doesn't I'm, make sense. I'm reassured, but I kind of knew that. I mean, we haven't discussed this previously to to now, um, and I'm, I'm reassured, but I kind of knew that you were going to feel the same way about <laughs> it. For like for the handful of films that we've we've disagreed on over the years, I I knew you were going <laughs> you were going to agree with me on a razorhead. It's very much its own thing, and and more power to him for setting out his manifesto so so clearly in the first place. But yeah, it's kind of, it feels kind of like oversaturated thematically yeah. and it's just it's abstraction upon abstraction and it's one of those it's almost impossible to even begin unpicking it yeah. um but as you say it's very much um you know as uh as a as an object of interest in terms of plotting out this guy's career is is an essential piece of his canon and yes. um you can't really talk about lynch without talking about a razor head and well we've done that now <laughs> We move forward to our March 2016 episode where we talk about the career of Stanley Kubrick and here we are talking about his excellent Doctor Strangelove. So moving swiftly on from Lolita to Doctor Strangelove in 1964 and I am ashamed to say that again until two nights ago I had somehow circumvented watching Doctor Strangelove up until this point in my life. I'm actually Um, really glad it's worked out that way. Because uh, I uh, I watched Doctor Strange Love a long time ago and absolutely loved it. And but every time I've gone back to it, it's never it's not the sort of comedy that really gains a lot of uh, a lot on repeat viewing. Mm. So I I would be able to talk about it now and tell you how much I like it, but I couldn't bring the kind of enthusiasm which I hope that you'll be able to bring to it, having just seen it for the first time. <laughs> I was re- I was absolutely blown away. Um, no pun intended. Um, but the, the thematic content of this movie. But I, obviously, broadly, I knew exactly what Doctor Strangelove was, as I suspect a lot of people who haven't, yeah. who haven't seen the movie do. It's, again, it's very much one of those sort of touchstone movies of the, the modern era. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised almost to find that it was every bit as good as I've, I've yeah. been told. Although I can understand what you're saying about perhaps maybe on repeat viewing, one might not take as, as much away. Um, but, fascinating to see that it probably to this day probably remains the darkest satire on war um, mm-hmm. ever committed to celluloids um, and reteaming the director was Sterling Hayden who plays Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper um, <laughs> there's a fantastic <laughs> there's a fantastic line of character naming in this of which yeah. my favourite is Bat Guano <laughs> 
yeah. which had me had me chuckling childishly for a good five minutes um, <laughs> before I'd even started watching the film. Um, who I'm plays... not sure it really beats out General Buck Turgidson. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. But Jack, Jack T. Ripper is an unhinged US Air Force base commander <laughs> obsessed with the, the creeping communist threat. Uh, and who's, <laughs> to her bodily fluids. To her, to her precious bodily fluids, whose, air, whose aircraft are currently deployed on a nuclear-armed exercise just outside of Soviet airspace, um, and who takes it upon himself to sever all communication between his, his base and the outside world. Um, and subsequently issues his aircraft with a non-retractable order to commence nuclear bombing of Russia, um, <laughs> leaving his baffled colleagues within the military and government merely an hour to save the world from Armageddon. Uh, if that sounds as though it's far too dark a subject matter to uh, to to make light of, then consider that this film was produced pretty much at the height of the Cold War, when people were <laughs> people were genuinely living their lives in fear of nuclear Armageddon. Um, and yeah, Kubrick thought the best way to handle that, and he's probably right. In, in retrospect, but was to basically step up and have a right good laugh at the situation. Um, Strange Love makes just as damning a case against the insanity of following orders at all costs as did Paths of Glory seven years previously. I would argue, um, albeit from a very different end of the the spectrum. Yeah. Um, I was I was I was so engaged by this movie for every minute and i'll tell you what the biggest surprise to me was was having you know only having having only really lived strange love vicariously through other people um who have seen it and raved about it over the years um the people's touchstone for this movie is always cited as being peter sellers and the fact that he took on three key and very different roles within this movie mm. um and on more than one occasion i've been told you know, it's Peter Sellers' show. He's the film's engine entirely. And the greatest pleasure for me in watching Doctor Strangelove was to actually find out that that is a total disservice to the rest of the central cast, who yeah. are uniformly excellent. And I'll tell you, in particular, Sterling Hayden, yes. who I wasn't expecting that comic turn from, and who is absolutely not perfect in dialogue, in posture, in every aspect of his performance it was such a thoroughly enjoyable movie dealing with such a terrible subject matter um and you know in such a in such a preposterous lampooning style that you can't really take it seriously um but i can i can absolutely see why this is is on so many people's sort of top 10 movies lists um and there's a very real danger that i suppose it could find its way it could find its way into my own top 10 um but i will have to give it um i'll have to give it some further watches scott but uh yeah really absolutely fascinating that kubrick again not in the sense that not in the sense that lolita was a, a difficult subject matter for a um for a director to approach but still very much very much a taboo subject at the time for someone especially to poke fun at I suppose and testimony to the fact that quite often the best way to deal with great adversity and fear is to is to try and make fun of it yeah um host to a, a wide number of just landmark kind of comic moments um not just from Peter Sellers but of course these lines like you can't fight in here this is the war room all these kind mm -hmm. of things it's just a very sharp script um very well observed and very funny. Lots of great uh, kind of physical touches of it as well. Um, the kind of 
<clears throat> also, Seller's performance is just the particularly is, is when he's playing group captain Lionel Mandrake, the stiff upper lip British officer who's yeah. the only sane man again in the whole room, and trying, he's stuck, trying desperately yeah, he's, to do bargain with the man who's worried about bodily fluids. Yeah, <laughs> as, as he's firing a fifty caliber machine gun out the window of his office at his own troops. Yes, <laughs> so many just wonderful little bit absurd uh, situations that it finds itself in. Uh, but, if I am going to be the the kind of critical one, which I suppose I should do, it's kind of my function here, uh, is that it's a very broad satire. It's uh, uh-huh, very uh-huh. obvious in what it's doing. So while the, the, I don't think you'll really get a lot more out of it the next time you go back to it, like you do something like, I don't know, a Coen Brothers comedy where there's always kind of layers to kind of go through. Yeah, this one is yeah. very, um, very straightforward and direct, but that's no uh, detriment to it. Certainly, as you probably learned from the first time you watch it, it's just absolutely mm. astonishing. Uh, no, a, re- a real comic tour de force. There's no great nuance to those character performances. They are yeah. out-and-out sort of comic performances. Um, and what, what surprised me about it is that I suppose people think of Kubrick as a very serious filmmaker, but on this evidence, he quite clearly has a sense of humour and, and an impeccable understanding of comedy and, and comic timing. I mean, it's not just down to his cast that this, is, this movie performs so successfully. Um, and also, I tell you what was really interesting for me was that, you know, as notorious a perfectionist as Kubrick was, and given his propensity for, you know, doing sort of 60 plus takes of any given scene sort of quite routinely, yeah. um, like, you know, Stanley Kubrick's, you know, average number of takes across his career for any one given scene is probably in the region of about 30 to 40, <laughs> um, if, if people's accounts uh, are, are to be believed. And there's one or two points in this, and specific, specifically, there's a, there's a point at which, um, Peter Sellers as Doctor Strangelove is going into one of his uh, one of his fits in his wheelchair at the end, sort of trying to take control <laughs> yeah. of his rogue arm. Where where Peter Bull, who plays the Russian ambassador, um, quite quite visibly corpses, <laughs> and is doing his best not to burst out laughing. And and honestly, I wouldn't have expected that in a Stanley Kubrick film. I wouldn't have imagined he would be the kind of you know, given his reputation, yeah. that he would have let that anywhere near the final cut. But <laughs> there's there's a there's a real joy in this movie, and and I like to think that everybody involved had you know a, a really good time. Whether whether or not everybody did, I don't know. But you know, um, what what just an outright and and crucially, I think even though I mean this this film is how old now? What nineteen sixty four? So fifty, you know, this film's over fifty years old now, and actually a lot of, a lot of that comedy would feel fairly. Although, as you say, it's painted in fairly broad strokes. I mean, it wouldn't be out of place in a in a sketch show or something today. It's it still feels quite fresh, and um, yeah, it's just just a really wonderful, quite rounded movie. As you say, I'm not sure if it will hold up um, particularly well to repeat viewing, but. To, to have watched this now at this point in my life, where I feel like, yeah, I'm I'm of an age now where I can I kind of appreciate that humour uh, around that situation. Then I'm really glad that I watched Doctor Strange Love now, um, and yeah, I feel I feel bad about not having watched it sooner, but perhaps it was for the best because I really really thoroughly enjoyed it, really enjoyed it, and I think it deserves all the praise that's been heaped on it, and 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 then some. Yeah, it certainly does, and I think I think pretty much from this point onwards we can. Um, well, maybe Eyes Wide Shot's an exception, but I can I can more or less uniformly say just you need to watch all these films. Certainly from this point on in his career, uh, all his films are have something to to warrant recommending them, and so you probably won't hear me say that anymore because just take it as read. If you've not seen anything past Doctor Strange Love, you really mm. should. Um, but now mm-hmm. we're getting into some of his more uh, uh, popular and well-regarded uh, works. Iconic so, works, yeah. Yeah, so this is... Uh, but certainly, Doctor Strange Love is a, a comic masterpiece and uh, definitely deserves looking at. 
and and as you say, given that we still have nuclear weapons, the actual content matter of it hasn't really aged uh, in, in the way you might expect something. This well, the, the way the way Ultimate. the way Putin's brandishing his dick at the moment, then um, yeah, it, do, it doesn't feel all that out of the out of the question even now. Um, some of these B-52s are still flying as well, so yes. there you go. <laughs> now, part of this podcasting gig was an attempt to broaden our cinematic horizons a bit and take on some films that we'd had either not seen for various reasons or even some entire movements that we'd uh, not seen fit to cram into our schedules. So that brings us to our episode in May of 2016, where we take a look at the French New Wave, and this one is from our Here's the Cinema podcast. And this review in particular is of the leading light of the New Wave genre, Jean-Luc Godard, his much-lauded Breathless. Now from Truffaut, we move on to another of the leading lights of the Cahier du Cinéma, Jean-Luc Godard, who, along with Truffaut, is probably the other banner name that people not that familiar with it may well have heard of. Captain of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> You've got to get it in there, haven't you? You have, apparently. <laughs> and what is his most famous film, possibly the most famous film in the French New Wave, which is Abu de Souffle, also known in English as Breathless. Yes, uh, but his, uh, Godard's first film, uh, I believe, at least his first feature again. Commonly held up as the best the film has to offer, which is surprising, given that I'd argue that it's objectively terrible in several areas, but get ahead of myself. I would argue that it's objectively beyond terrible. <laughs> Please carry on. Right, uh, we're introduced to Michel, played by Jean-Paul Belmondo, who earns himself a promotion from petty thug to public enemy when he murders a policeman, seemingly in order to avoid a speeding ticket. Which, yeah, that's, um, that's a pretty weak start, isn't it? There's yeah, no character motivation there at all. It rather brings into question his risk-reward calculations, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> well, anyway, um, Michel flees to Paris, hoping to lose himself amongst the crowds and also to reclaim some money that is owed to him to allow him to escape to Italy, I believe it was. While there, he becomes reacquainted with Patricia, played by Jean Selberg, Jean Selberg, Seberg, Jean Seberg. <laughs> I'll cut some of that out. Um <laughs> She's an American student and would-be journalist, and Michelle sets about seducing her, not just for the usual reasons, but also to gain another hiding place in Paris. However, his romantic options are rather limited by the police's ever-closing net as their manhunt shuts down Michelle's options. Uh, there's a few problems for being breathless, and I suppose we'll deal with the conventional ones first, chiefly that Michelle, despite his insistence that he's modelling himself in Humphrey Bogart, has all the magnetism of Humphrey Bogart's toenail clippings, <laughs> and this unlikable murderous misogynistic tool is not someone I want to see leading a film. The model may perhaps be closer to Jimmy Cagney's gangster roles, but John Paul Belmondo ain't no Jimmy Cagney. Now, if the main influence that's trickled down from Breathless is the freedom to experiment with how films are made, we should at least raise the counterpoint that for a lot of the time, those things were done for pretty good reasons. Things like, for example, using a film stock that's actually available in usable quantities, such that you're not stuck spicing 18 metre lengths of Ilford HPX photo stock together before shooting. Things like using sub-studio lights rather than just relying on natural light, so that you don't have to push that film stock from ISO 400 up to 800. And this unorthodox choice of film stock severely limited the camera choice, which brings me to my greatest annoyance in the film. The Eclair Camiflex was the only camera able to function with this Franken film stock, and not only did it not synchronise sound recording, it sounds like an elephant skeleton falling down a metal staircase inside an <laughs> echo chamber. So, near as damn it. 
oh, what a wonderful metaphor. <laughs> Thank you, you've made my day. Uh, so Nero's Dammit, this entire film has been ADR'd, which is still actually a relatively common occurrence in these new wave films, given their punch home for guerrilla permitless outdoor shootings. But here it's done so singularly ineptly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I try not to get hung up on technical flaws, especially from older films, but this is such a glaring annoyance that I cannot take any of this film seriously. None of the voices sound remotely like they're coming from the same room as the bodies and what little foley work there that is in there is so badly mixed that it comes across as a parody. Likewise, Breathless may well be the start of the jump cut revolution, but it's in its actual effect is a complete mixed bag. While in it's used in some driving sequences in ways that are quite commonly used today, which does make it achingly contemporary. It's also rather puzzlingly used to absolutely no effect whatsoever in some dialogue scenes, which oh yes, the scene in the cafe in particular. Yeah, it just makes when, it like it cuts. It does like a, an edit more or less after every sentence. Yeah. Uh, driving me crazy. Makes no sense. Doesn't add anything. Makes it look like a badly produced YouTube vlog. I mean, the film overall is not completely without merit. Uh, being the root of influence for most of these aspects of modern cinematic technique, it does have some legitimacy as a historical document and there's an undeniable energy and vibrancy to it but overall there's so much wrong with it that I couldn't even call it a decent film. Important? I I might grant you that. Classic? Nope. Uh, Too much of it is much too rubbish to be mentioned in the same league as your Citizen Kane's or your Lawrence's of Arabia's is. is. To be honest uh, I enjoyed it so little I can't even recommend it on a historical level. Read up on it if you like. But as a film, rather like most lower league football, it's a dismal 90 minutes. Yes, I have nothing but issues with this film. (laughs) First of all, it's... I I think this is genuinely a bad film. Not just a film I didn't like much. I think it's objectively a very, very bad film. It's badly made. It's badly written. It's badly acted. For me, there's so very little of merit in this. I mean, I think maybe the person who comes out of it with the least least sin on their soul for this film is Jean Seberg yeah. and she's given a harder job to do too because she's uh, an American acting in this in her what's not her first language mm-hmm. and her character's um, likeable enough to be fair but unfortunately yeah, I mean, she's, yeah. it's, it's not the strongest character but it, she's she's likeable enough and even if you question some of her decisions and I do actually particularly question some of her decisions yeah. in combination of with my other big character issue with the film and that's one you've mentioned already Jean-Paul Belmondo as Michel Jean-Paul Bellend more like exactly <laughs> he's a complete Bellend <laughs> he is from the very first scene deeply unlikable he has no charisma at all to the yeah. point where even Dennis Quaid could struggle to play this role <laughs> and <laughs> your hatred for the Quaid knows no bounds no, I'll try to fit it into as many podcasts as I possibly can. <laughs> Preferably, legitimately, like I just have, but it's a challenge to myself. Yeah, um, questionable um, legitimacy, I'd say there, but okay. <laughs> yeah, Jean-Paul Belmondo, he, he has no charisma at all. His character is so thin. Yeah. The character motivations make no sense. He, he just murders a police officer because, but then there's <laughs> never any suggestion later on that he is psychotic or that he's particularly scared because he's so laid back for the rest of it. Yeah. That, like, it does not fit at all with with the act that begins the film. So, yeah, I say no charisma. The character is so thin. He is as almost everything about his character rubs me the wrong way. Hmm. He thinks he's really cool and clever and he's just a git. Yeah. He's just spectacularly irritating character. So then you add to that the lack of much story, although it's a, 
narratively maybe stronger than say Gelasium in terms of like kind of see where it's going that, that there's a thing one falls on from the other a bit more strongly but I don't like the characters the technical aspects were doing my head in yeah the, the constant jump cuts that added nothing um, for instance when it's at the start when it's the I still think it's pretty inexpertly done, although it's almost a, um, an experiment at that stage coming a couple of years before, say, even like Dr. No tried doing a wee bit of jump cuts to a bit more effect, although it used them quite sparingly, that you've got in the, the exploring those, the use of that kind of editing to give it a bit more energy, make it a bit more mm-hmm. frenetic. The car chase at the start, they fit inexpertly done, but they make sense there. Yeah. But then that scene in particular, and the scene in the cafe that I mentioned, where he's talking and what's his I know it's the the guy that Gene Seberg's meeting with sorry he's talking yeah, so it's the other journalist fella yeah the journalist yeah and um, then there's just and I know I don't know whether part of that is simply because of like the technical restrictions because they were using that very short run stock so they can get long takes coupled with the fact that Goddard was feeding lines to the actors just before they started a scene hmm. to try and make everything as fresh as possible which in most cases just comes across as ill-prepared <laughs> um, which is okay when you're doing a silly podcast before anybody makes any smart comments <laughs> but uh, when you get paid to make a film maybe not so much so yeah they literally are there's an edit after every sentence sometimes even a half sentence during that scene and I just I wanted to throw the film out of the window and somehow ceremoniously set fire to it <laughs> uh, which is quite difficult to do with a digital file but uh, <laughs> then you have problems with the sound as you said Scott and even then the sync's still out in quite a lot of places even with the ADR yeah it's just it's really badly done I mean the, look it could the technique itself has been used for decades. It's nothing inherently wrong with having the film ADR. It's just been done so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Like I say, there's I think there's two instances of making any attempt at having like room noise folded into it, and it sounds absolutely laughable. I did actually laugh out loud. They, they, they dubbed some train noise. I think it was at one point. It's just so ludicrous, <laughs> out, out of place. It just doesn't work at all. It's just really sloppily done. Yeah unforgivably bad yeah it's so technically it's a shambles <laughs> narratively it's narratively perhaps it's not too bad it's character wise the other part of it's where it's really let down because yeah michelle's character is so thin this motivations make no sense then you have a complete pillock playing him he's deeply unlikable throughout and a couple other minor annoyances but they just because I was already so against this film, it just kind of got my back up further. There's a scene at the very beginning of the film and one right at the end where the fourth wall is broken mm. to no good end. Yeah. And it just drives me crazy. It's like, occasionally, a clever use of breaking the fourth wall can sort of put a, an edge into a film or even create humour or something like that. I don't... Because it, there's only, I think, the two instances of it and they're so sparing and they add nothing to the film. I genuinely don't understand what they're in there for. Yeah. Um, and like, we're not sure at all what Goddard's trying to say or do with that. So for a film that's considered somehow a landmark, it's considered like the standout film of the French New Wave, it's the most famous one, and I genuinely don't understand why or how. Yeah, in many ways I'm glad that it stands out, because then you know to avoid it quite easily. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's really my only explanation for it, but no, I, I could not get on with this at all. It's just badly made nonsense. Unfortunately, this was one that I had bought. This was one of the other ones that I owned for years because of the reputation, and I was interested in sort of again broadening my horizons. It took me fifteen years after buying it to do it, but never mind that. <laughs> uh, it was 
it's kind of iconic artwork for it too and it's like so it's always been sort of on the periphery of my my knowledge of cinema i've always been vaguely aware of this and it's so iconic like, oh like, finally yes i'm going to make myself watch this like oh oh yes <laughs> oh oh yes unlike citizen yes. kane it did not live up to its hype in the slightest <laughs> no no quite the opposite um yes i'm afraid i well, not that you can possibly be in any doubt if you're listening to this, but if you want to check out the French New Wave, do not begin with Breathless. Do not put Breathless in the middle. Do not end with Breathless. <laughs> Just avoid Breathless entirely. You'll do, be happier. Do not collect $200. <laughs> do not, Pasco. October 2015 saw us taking a look at the various cinematic incarnations of Jack Ryan, and in particular the few we've selected here today, it combines two of our favourite things, submarine movies and terrible Sean Connery accents. So let's dive straight in to this review of The Hunt for Red October. Bit of a potted history on celluloid and a recent attempt to reboot the franchise, Jack Ryan, the creation of Tom Clancy, has so far been the subject of no less than five celluloid ventures, uh, coming in at something like, am I correct in saying, uh, the 84th most lucrative uh, film franchise <laughs> to date? So, not the <laughs> not the uh, top of the tree, but... The fact that you've looked that up at all um, is only slightly less baffling than that somebody would create that list in the first place, but okay... Absolutely. You're just going to have to take my word for it. I've pulled that figure from completely off the top of my head. It's somewhere between 80th and 90th something. I don't know. I assume anyway, it's sourced from the never wrong Wikipedia. No, no. Um, from the even less ever wrong IMDb trivia, probably. Um, and we all know the uh, the veracity of that. So I guess, um, yeah, we all probably know the Jack Ryan movies, right? Or at least most people will be familiar with them in passing. Um, yeah, but I'm not even sure they, would, they wouldn't even know that name some people but I think Hunt for Red October you'd mentioned people knowing, to, to vaguely know what you're aware of it's mm. certainly not an obscure thing by any means no absolutely so I guess okay so you've you've name checked uh, the first entry in the, the series uh, 1990's Hunt for Red October um, so probably worthwhile kicking off with that first then Submarine Movie uh, is probably the answer you'd get um, from most people um, a couple of people I've asked actually haven't been aware of the fact it was a Jack Ryan movie and there's probably a couple of reasons for that but directed by john mctiernan uh straight off the back of die hard mm-hmm. bringing along with him director of photography jan de bont and watching the film again now uh for the first time since probably it first came out the thing that struck me immediately was quite how similar in terms of uh appearance uh to 1988's die hard was oh how can i forget what year die hard was it must have been 1988 yeah thank god for that sorry okay now i'm doing myself (laughs) i would have had to have punished myself if that was Um, 1988 yes we're both we can allow ourselves to live excellent excellent so coming straight off the success of uh, die hard mctiernan's handed this project and for my money actually right off the bat i'm just going to say that this is probably by some margin my favorite entry in the franchise oh yeah i'd have to agree with that absolutely now Unlike you, I am not unfamiliar with it since it came out because I watch it all of the time. Well, a bit of an exaggeration, but um, <laughs> I, do, I do have a bit of a thing for submarine movies, and this is far away my favourite. And okay. I've actually found that, yeah, I just found this endlessly watchable. It's, um, I mean, it's because it's just, it's just like a really good thriller with, you know, it's got a quality director who, having come off the back of Die Hard, as you say, at the top of his game, really. Mm. Um, you've got very, very dependable cast. Sean Connery, um, 
who's Lithuanianist because people keep casting Sean Connery with accents he has yeah. probably never even heard of. But I think that at the time and, and ever since, that's one of the things this movie's uh, most remembered for is that so many people seem to be hung up on Sean Connery's accent. It became something of a joke, and I actually find that a little bit. I find that a little bit unfair, to be honest with you, because I think in a movie where very few people are actually trying to put on Russian accents, I honestly, I didn't, I expected it from memory and from other people's um, poking fun at it. I really expected it to detract more from this uh, from this recent viewing of the movie, and actually, I found that it didn't at all. Well, I didn't, I didn't feel it was particularly out of place. Well, see, even then, to be honest, I don't know if it's just because he can't do them, or mm. I'm sort of more used to his. It's relaxing. I can always hear that underneath. Um, I mentioned his accent, but it's not like he actually really puts one on in this. No. Um, you know, it, asked, it must have been like the f- um, fourth or fifth time I watched The Untouchables to really notice that, oh, he's actually trying an Irish accent on that, is he? Yeah. People have told me that I'd never noticed because you couldn't tell. Yeah. And uh, I think The Hunt for Reddit was a bit the same there. And yeah, not that many people, as you see, are putting on an accent here. There's Peter Firth at the start, who also gives, gives a <laughs> go um, speaking a bit of Russian. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sam for a, for a Neil, short while. Sam Neill, and for the main cast, that's about it. It's like mm. Tim Curry's basically being English in it. Yeah, that's, I I started I I sat there watching this and I thought I made the mistake of sitting trying to take notes and I got so far before I realised that this is I'm actually enjoying the the film far too much to spend time taking notes. Mm-hmm. But and I'll probably need to bleep this. But the first note I've made here, if I look at it, is "fucking hell, Tim Curry is in this," <laughs> which I don't I don't remember at all. And he's not in a he's not in some sort of camp role or some no, sort of scenery chewing overblown. It's one of the it's one of the few sort of kind of straight toned down performances i've seen from him yeah i mean it's not it's not a particularly remarkable performance but it's entirely competent mm. and quite well not to say that tim curry's incompetent but yeah it's quite straight for him um yeah i th- i feel like it's fair to say that the you know his more memorable performances have been when he's he's bordered on the sort of histrionic mm-hmm. um that seems to be his stock and trade and it was actually quite a surprise to see him pop up here because i had no recollection of him being in it and that's probably to his credit, because if it had been some sort of overblown performance, then I surely would have remembered. And here he is, just a kind of functional, you know, officer, um, sort of a, a reasonably high-ranking member of the crew, who mm-hmm. just sort of can't go, you know, uh, not to ruin anything, but knocks about performing his duties and um, so keeps th- himself to himself for the most part. I'm not going to go out to spoil things deliberately, but if you've mm. not seen a 25-year-old film and we're talking yes. about it as a retrospective, let's not too worry too much about spoiling anything, okay? So, besides the fact that Tim Curry is in this, playing, I think, actually, he's the ship's doctor, isn't he? He's right? the, he is the doctor, yeah. Yeah, he's, just, he's the, the doctor, so there you go. Um, I guess, yeah, being pleasantly surprised as I was about how well this film appears to have aged, I was... Um, I was generally taken aback, and I don't, I don't, don't pay a great deal of heed to Metacritic scores because I generally tend to find that for any given value of Metacritic score, Metacritic is wrong. Um, but that's the problem with taking an average. But yeah, I was actually quite surprised to see how fairly lowly ranked this was at around, I think, a score of about fifty-eight. Fifty-eight at the moment, yeah, which is yeah. that's wrong. Yeah, um, that really, and, and a lot of that, if, I, if you skip down the list, seems to be the fact that it's bottomed out by the Christian Science Monitor, <laughs> scoring at twenty-five. Yeah, um, but even taking even taking that into account, I feel like um, I guess a lot of these reviews were probably posted at the time, and I was actually surprised at how negative some of the reactions were. Yeah, um, there's also possibly too. I think it's quite well known that 
Tom Clancy's never been particularly happy about how things have been handled in adaptations of his work. Mm. Um, not that's a particularly unusual thing to hear from an author, but um, yeah. given Tom Clancy's a right wing nut job, I'm going to just happily ignore him anyway. Well, um, it was he popped his clogs, didn't he? Yeah, last year, the year before. Yeah, yeah so because yeah. um, fortunately, I think it's easy to think that any military based film can be considered right wing, but uh, mm-hmm. I think for the large part his politics um and i've never actually read any of his books so maybe they're not in there either but his politics never certainly seem to be in his films that much no it has to be said that there's no sort of uh, great right-wing agenda here in fact if anything quite the opposite it's, yeah, especially the, get... the overwhelming message of this film is is uh tolerance and yeah, understanding absolutely which is comes back in like some of all fears too very much the same sort of thing there which is yeah very much a bit more sort of um liberal and wet really compared to you know right-wing hawks or anything yeah um, absolutely but yeah, so you're saying this has got some low scores again, which I don't understand because it's, I mean, it's no Citizen Kane, obviously, yeah. but it's an exceptionally competent um, action-adventure thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's got really compelling performance from Sean Connery, who, you know, as accent aside, is a great actor and it's very entertaining to watch. You've and a $20,000 hairpiece. Yeah, um, then you've got... Alec Baldwin just really starting to make his name in Hollywood, being really good in it. Yeah, and that's the biggest shock of this, even more so than Tim Curry appearing in it, is that I'd forgotten young Alec Baldwin is, is like barely recognisable in this. Yeah, there's um, sort of a heaviness to him. And I don't, like, in fantasy, it's just, kind of like, sort of, it just seems a more weighty person, even from, like, Glenn Gary and Ross onwards. And in this, he's, he's mm. so slight, he's like a boy. And it's like, oh, it's just weird. Yeah, it is really weird. It's mm. almost as weird as the fact that when he leaves for his flight at the start of the film, he chooses to dress as a slightly updated Captain Birdseye. But <laughs> that aside... <laughs> that's that a metaphor. <laughs> analogy, rather. <sighs> um, that aside, actually, yeah. And the surprising thing for me as well is that given sort of... I suppose it's probably fair to say that... Um, you know, in the period after this film, I guess Alec Baldwin's very much known as an alpha male character, right? Mm. And that's very much how he portrays himself. Actually, revisiting this film now for the first time since I was, well, I mean, I guess, you know, like in my early teens, really. Now, with hindsight, I actually appreciate, I think, that, and we'll come to talk about this a bit later, but I'd probably say that Alec Baldwin gives the best portrayal of Jack Ryan as well. I feel like he's, um, in this movie, he's not, he he doesn't give the sort of, the wet behind the ears kind of the bizarre age versus experience thing that Harrison Ford um, comes out with in his sort of muddled performances. He's he is a little bit wet behind the ears in this. Alec Baldwin, his, his inexperience shows through, mm-hmm. um, but it never seems incompetent. He's just engaging enough, and he's also not he's not he's not given enough focus to detract from the actual the the ebb and flow of the movie itself. The movie sort of propels itself forward at this really quite certain pace and. And I feel like his character's weighted just right so that you're always aware of his involvement and he's part of driving that plot forward. In fact, he's a big part of it. But he's he's never... His performance never detracts from what's happening on screen. No, it is pitched just right to him and because mm. and it seems to work for the character for me too. Is that he's not cocky. No. Um, he's not no. cocky at all. He's maybe even a bit unsure of himself, but he knows that he's right. Um, he's got the courage of his convictions, but he's absolutely not arrogant about it. Yeah, um, and that comes across really well in Alec Baldwin's performance. I would say. I think re- refresh my memory here because when I sat down to start watching these movies, and even after I watched them, I found myself sitting thinking, "Yeah, sorry, what exactly is Jack Ryan again? Is he CIA? He's CIA. He's an analyst. He's um, an analyst for the CIA. Yeah, he's a right, former okay. marine, which um, as it comes up in 
is this is the film that focuses they mention most on it at that some point in this apart yeah. from um, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit because it shows what happens mm-hmm. sort of update the fact that he was on a he had a helicopter crash in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. um, then you know did the last year he's a cannery from the hospital and learned to walk again so mm-hmm. they give you a wee bit of a backstory there about the sort of determination of the character yeah um, yeah so he's working he's a CIA analyst but he seems to have a kind of friendship with Admiral Greer um, mm. or sort of gets on his radar anyway that it's kind of a comes, it's almost like he's become his protege that seems to be it during the Harrison Ford ones particularly you get the feeling that they've been working together for a long time a long time yeah. sort of grooming him well grooming's not great training possibly mm. um, but yeah CIA analyst who just in the wrong place at the wrong time or possibly the right place at the right time depending on your yeah. point of view I think um, I, I think the mistake people make in this film is I've seen a lot of criticism levelled at John McTiernan saying that he brought none of his flair from um, and skill that he displayed in Die Hard to this movie and I, th- I think that's really really disingenuous it's not that there aren't things wrong with this movie I made a couple of notes especially around the script there's a tendency for the script in places to suddenly stall and uh and indulge in exposition, exposition. Mm-hmm. I think the, f- the first instance of that is when um, Ryan goes to see the guy in the uh, the, the sub manufacturing facility for um, for his opinion on the the drive that they've they've noticed. Yeah, on. there's that the, because even just like a little bit just for that too. It's like look at this little submarine he's testing. Pay attention. This will yeah, be important ex- later. Yeah, exactly. That's the note I've made. It's like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm just putting this universal docking collar on a rescue sub so that it can dock with any sub. British, German, trails off. Hmm. It's like, okay, I wonder if that's going to be important. That's a little um, artless, that section, I would say. But um, It is, and it, it hiccups every now and again as well. And again, people have pointed at McTiernan's direction and said, look, any sort of credit in this film really goes to Jan de Bont's <laughs> cinematography. And let me be clear here as well that working together, John McTiernan and Jan de Bont, um, and this this film more than probably even more than Die Hard, I think, and it must be it must be to do with the kind, confined spaces and the close focus. Um, it's immediately apparent that he's shooting on anamorphic, and the just the, the style and the aesthetic that that lends in the sort of cramped atmosphere of the submarine is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that anamorphic lens flare, which what's his chops, J.J. Abrams goes out of his way to fake with absolute abandon, like a like a kid with a squeaky button. <laughs> um, honestly, this is how it should be done. And I can't yeah. watch this film and I thought, I tell you what, this is what I can tell you now, this must be one of J.J. Abrams' touchstones um, for his visual style in that respect. Um, but when you see it done properly here, actually with anamorphic equipment, uh, which is the only way you legitimately get that kind of lens flare, it, um, it's, it's a beautiful thing to behold. And actually, I find that for all the... Um, for all the issues that the film has, minor issues, it's not necessarily the visual appeal that um, papers over them. Um, I honestly think that John McTiernan's direction, I, it's nowhere near as workmanlike as some people make out. I actually think he deserves the credit for propelling the thing along at such a tight pace um, that you don't really care about those things so much. So, yeah, credit where credit's due. I really, really enjoyed rewatching Red October, and um, it's. I think I'm going <laughs> to drop it into a folder on my network drive somewhere, and I'm pretty sure I'll come back and watch it again. Good man. What is it? I mean, what is, if you were to sum it up, what is it about this film? I mean, I know you're you're a fan of submarine films, but um, I don't know. It's just I find that, and even though I've watched it so many times and I know how it ends and how it goes, I mean, I basically know this film off by heart. Um, mm. But I just find that every time I watch it, the tension still works. That I don't know. It's 
I mean, this does sound like damn it with faint praise, but it's just quite incredibly competent. Mm. Um, and it really sounds like I'm underselling that there, but mm. I just find that everything about him, I mean, it looks nice. I just love the claustrophobia feeling, the claustrophobic feeling of being in a submarine, but without it being mm. sort of overwhelmingly so. Mm-hmm. Then just like the, the characters are interesting, well played. Just, I, I always find Sean Connery very watchable, but mm. um, I don't know. Yes, I started to think of something. More uh, more than some of its parts, probably. Possibly more praiseworthy than it's um, it's competently done. Yeah. You know, it's just... It's good, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You can't ask for more praise than that. (laughs) In our April 2016 intermission podcast, we took on the critically acclaimed movie The Assassin. It's an art house favourite, but what will our blue collar sensibilities make of it? Next up on the list is The Assassin from a, a writer whose name I will struggle to pronounce. I think it's Sao Sen Hu. I was going to say, uh, let's take a stab at it. I decided <laughs> last night that yeah. I would take a stab at it, and now, yeah, now I've lost the IMDb page. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, a highly celebrated director whose works has been on my to watch list for some time, although mm. I think this might actually be the first one I've caught up with. It's being pushed as a redefinition of the wushu genre, a la mm. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or House of the Flying Draggers, which I don't think is entirely the case, but no. at any rate, I'm getting rather ahead of myself. Ni Yin Yang, played by Kushu, is taken from her parents as a child and raised to be a peerless assassin. However, after suffering a sudden attack of morals and uh, she refuses to kill a target in front of his son, she's sent back to the province of her birth with orders to kill the man that she had been promised to in marriage as a kid and still seemingly harbours feelings for, this man who is also in charge of the largest military forces in 7th century China. Uh, the film is set in 7th century China. It's not like in modern times or anything. That would be a, unusual if you still had someone been in charge of the largest military force in 7th century China if it wasn't set there. Uh, <laughs> it, as a film, it, it looks stunningly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And if this isn't the most attractively shot film of the year, then there's some treat awaiting for us, but it would have to be something truly extraordinary. To a degree, it does call back to the previously mentioned films, with strong, bold, vibrant use of colour and painterly framing, uh, often very sedately held for some time, and Hugh somewhat anachronistically using the Academy ratio, which gives the film a very distinctive look. Mm. Visually, it's an absolute treat, and I'm a sucker for this period. The detail's incredible, and the pacing, while it's sedate, held my attention, and the brief flurries of action are satisfying, and it's a joint reaction. Rather less edifying, I had only the loosest grasp on what was going on and who <laughs> most of the characters were, I'm sorry, I'm or their relation to each other. I'm glad <laughs> I'm not the only one then. Well, that's all three <laughs> of us. I mean, from the recaps that I read of the plot, it doesn't seem to be a particularly complex story, nope. and I think I'm normally savvy enough to follow plots of this nature, so I don't know if it was just an off day for me, but your reaction heartens me a bit, but it just feels oh, like the story you. is obfuscated somehow. I just, I was just baffled by it, I'm not quite sure how. Yeah. Obfuscated is the word that came to my mind as well, Scott, and possibly obtuse. It's, yes. Um... <laughs> Also, uh, it's perhaps more a criticism of coverage of the film rather than the film itself, but I'm not exceedingly clear as to why you would champion this as redefining work in the Bushu genre, unless oh. you're happy with redefining, meaning leaving most of the genre out entirely. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But that's a perfectly valid way to focus on the characters and the acting performance and the detail of the period and yada yada, all the stuff that I really liked on it, but... That makes it a drama with the occasional wushu element, not a wushu film. It'd be like redefining the Fast and the Furious franchise by removing cars from the next film and making it about dirgibles. And while I'm entirely on board with an airship-based outing, calling it Fast and the Furious would be perverse. Mm-hmm. The bloated so, and the ponderous. 
<laughs> Still, that said, for me at least, the positives do outweigh the negatives quite a bit, and I can recommend it just purely on the aesthetic principle alone. Oh. If you're less of a dummy than we are, you might even like the plot, but I'm not quite sure you'll be able to penetrate it. But yes, um, certainly distinctive. I enjoyed watching it, but I'm not entirely sure why I enjoyed it. I'm not entirely sure what I was enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> I am very much of the opposite mind to you, Scott. It seems like I've seen lots of people talk about how beautiful this film looks, and I think absolutely it does not. Visually, this film I did not like at all. I mean, there are a few undeniably beautiful shots, but for me, those were in spite of rather than due to the cinematography. You have striking landscapes that simply could not fail to be visually arresting no matter where you plonk the camera down within them. But most of the rest of the time, the scene composition is insipid. Mundane shots of trees in the middle of fields and scenes of sets containing the most beautiful rooms and glorious costumes presented with the most uninspired and lifeless camera work and what that does is stop the film feeling like a film at all but more like a series of still lifes joined together no doubt that's an intentional choice but for me that's just one that fails wholly in making the assassin an enjoyable watch i mean it's also and as you mentioned uh, it's a martial arts film that makes the bold move of largely eschewing martial arts so i think people need to really update their genre dictionary when they're describing this. These issues, coupled with the fact that the characters are incredibly thin and what little plot there is is willfully obfuscated and obtuse for most of the film, as well as pacing, so slow that the word tectonic, even more so than glacial springs to mind, means that, for me, there is almost nothing worthy of recommendation in The Assassin. I would recommend avoiding it. <laughs> this is turning out to be one of our more interesting <laughs> podcasts, because we're all, we're all over opinions here just now. I'm going to go straight ahead and say it's, it's interesting to hear you your guys you struggle with the plot even though you were paying attention because I had assumed that the reason I finished the movie and thought to myself what was all that about was I'd, I'd made up my mind that I knew why and it's because I spent so much of my time with my eyes just sort of taking in detail and searching the frame that I wasn't paying attention to the subtitles on quite a lot of occasions uh, and I found myself mm. completely bewildered within I would say the first 10 minutes like 10 seconds is, <laughs> is probably close <laughs> Closer to the truth, but like I'm, su- I'm surprised. I'm surprised that you're uh, you are entirely entitled to your opinion, Drew, as regards the cinematography. But I'm, I'm perhaps surprised by it because I think this is objectively a um, a beautiful film. If I and I think compositionally, I, I I was blown away by it. If I were going to take issue with anything, it's the stylistic choice of the use of saturation. And there's, I'm intrigued to know what the the process during the the transfer and the. Um, the gradient was in this film because when I watched it, I assumed it had been shot on digital and it wasn't. It was shot on Kodak 35mm stock. Digital intermediate, I think. Yeah, yeah, digital intermediate. And it's interesting because the choices made, the sort of the use of oversaturation was bordering on the objectional in places, but for some reason it won me over. There's also this thing going on where I assumed it had been shot digitally and also potentially some scenes had this slight whiff of HDR about them, but I'm going to assume that's not the case. It's as though quite a few of the scenes have been fairly subtly tone mapped or something instead. And the whole thing is so... This is going to sound potentially daft, but one of the things I noticed immediately about it is one of the sharpest, sharpest movies that mm. I've ever seen. The definition, the detail mm-hmm. is absolutely incredible. And I'm again, I'm going to go and assume that at some point in the grading or the, you know, in the digital processing of the film stock that some form of sharpening might well have been applied. Again, as a stylistic choice, because it, I'm flabbergasted by it. I'd love to see it in the cinema. I'd love to see it in 4K. 
just to to see whether or not I can confirm my suspicions. But yeah, I mean, most of what I took away from this film was its visual flair. I found the pace of it actually... Fil- films that are this slow burn can go one of two ways for me. And, and for me, The Assassin actually... Um, I feel like it almost lucked out rather than anything else, but I I found it was quite seductive in places. I found it was quite hypnotic, actually. And I actually really liked some of these shots where people have some dialogue or there'll be a clash and then people will just suddenly stop and stand and stare at each other for what feels like about five minutes while the camera sort of... Sometimes it's sometimes it's entirely locked off, other times it's perhaps swaying about slightly, very gradually. There's something really hypnotic about it. I'm not sure how those stylistic choices serve the story, which from what I gathered, was the story of one of the least successful assassins in history. <laughs> Certainly the bottom half of the table, because in the course of the film, correct me if I'm wrong, our <laughs> our lead lady kills one person and <laughs> it right. resolutely fails to do away with anyone else throughout the entire course of the film. And also, I do think assassins are supposed to be sort of stealthy. She, she seems to walk up to people she's going to kill and then say hiya and fail to kill them. I kind of like the part where she just walks up to them and just kind of like springs out of a bush or just suddenly just strolls into the room and stands there for a bit until someone realises she's there. I kind of like the moxie of that, but um, yeah, it kind of goes a bit south when for reasons that aren't necessarily always clear at the time, she just sort of stares at them, then turns around and just walks calmly away. <laughs> it's not <laughs> It's not even that we're given this portrayal of inner turmoil that we can you know that we can assess and and say all right okay yeah oh she's obviously got some issue there just there's this very almost robotic sensibility about the way she goes about her actions where she'll just stop stare turn around walk away again what it's it's interesting Mm -hmm. stylistically but i'm not entirely sure how all of these stylistic um choices are actually serving the plot but then again as i point out i can't tell you what the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't tell you what the plot is. As you say, Scott, having having read plot summaries of it afterwards, having read synopses of it afterwards, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that does sound like I shouldn't have had much problem following it with or without <laughs> subtitles. But there you go. It's an interesting film and, and for me it, it exceeds um, stylistically. But yeah, it's by no means a wushu movie. There are perhaps two examples at most of what might be classed as sort of what you might perceive as traditionally as as being wushu and even then they're very brief there's almost no wire work or anything involved to the point where they might as well not have bothered for some of the scenes <laughs> instead of having two characters standing in a roof they could have just had them meet in the street outside instead and it would have it would have saved the the stunt guys setting up a wire rig for like half a day or whatever for the sake of a 10 second scene but yeah an interesting beast i'm gonna i'm gonna say it was the best of the movies i watched this month but that's damning with faint praise stylistically i think a, a success almost in spite of itself but yes i'm perhaps baffled as to how picked up best director at Cannes. february 2016 saw us taking a look at the shadowy world of espionage and in particular this review is of the jean le car adaptation the spy who came in from the cold I have found a new film to love, and it's 51 years young this year, I believe. <laughs> yeah, the, the first Lacar adaptation, I believe it was, hmm. certainly from Lies. Um, yeah, and that film would be uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the 1965 adaptation, uh, in which Richard Burton plays Alec Lemus, the handler of Britain's undercover agents in Berlin at the height of the Cold War. 
Lemus has overseen a disastrous period for British agents in the city due to counter-operations by his German counterpart, Munt, and when the last of his charges is killed by crossing the divide of the Berlin Wall on his way to debriefing, the hard-drinking chief is faced with a choice. Either walk away from his life in espionage or undertake one last very dangerous mission. Uh, initially, it would seem that Lemus, and it's quite actually quite disorientingly, it initially seems that Lemus has chosen the former. Uh, but shortly we come to realise that he has in fact taken the one last job option, that being to convince the German agency that he has in fact decided to defect and is now in fear of execution by his own side. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is one of those films that I, uh, I keep hearing people talk about and it's perpetually popping up in you know, recommendation lists. And for some reason, despite the fact it's in a genre that I really love, it's, a, it's kind of a touchstone picture that's highly regarded in this genre that I love. For some reason, I've never come around to watching it. And it was only about was it about a week ago that I watched this in preparation for the podcast. And man alive, what a film! Yeah, I mean, I I'd read the book or well, the audio book uh, read to me at that point uh, some time <laughs> ago, and uh, I liked it a lot. And then I think I watched this was at the end of one of the TV adaptations, and that didn't really grab me very much. So I think that put me off uh, further investigation of the the film, but. That was a stupid idea, as it turns out, because Spy Who Came In For Cold's amazing. Um, yeah. All of the car adaptations we're going to talk about here are brilliant. I don't know yet if this is better than Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I think it actually might be, just because Richard Burton's performance is incredible, and also it's easily the most cynical and uh, hard-edged of it. Oh, yes. Uh, this is the sort of real nasty side of uh, the espionage game that's uh, certainly towards the end, you think, is... Perfectly yeah. believable and also really quite soul destroying at the end of the day. Well, as mm. as as some of the characters' motivations are in uh, Tinker Sailor, Soldier Spy, or any number of these films tonight, so so many of its characters' emotions and experiences are predicated on the fact they have a they have a sneaking suspicion that they're obviously partaking in very dangerous work, but. They're obviously in danger from the other side, but they all almost always have a sneaking suspicion that they might they might be viewed as entirely expendable by their own side. And this is one of those films where that turns out to be the case for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. Sorry, spoiler spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, in a lot of cases in this movie, that that sneaking suspicion turns out to be vindicated. It's also got one of the more incredibly multi layered plots that is going on in the sort of intrigue world. It's all very bluff and double bluff, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it doesn't feel as though it's ludicrous. It feels like this is actually something that could very believably have happened. Yeah, I think I think probably to the sorry Scott, probably to the same extent as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, it probably goes that deep into um into like you say plot and counterplot and and subterfuge and and double dealing. But it it to me it didn't feel as complex as Tinker Tailor watching it. It didn't feel quite as dense. It was easier to digest, which I think is in its which strength. I think is unusual because I I think it is actually far more complicated because at heart Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is there is a mole we need to find a mole where this mm. is, in a way, we need to protect them all by doing some seriously weird things. And uh, the kind of multi-layered plot that goes on to do that really does kind of... It, it should be ridiculous, but somehow it isn't. It's all very believable, and uh, even though it's you know, taking place at a very high level, it all works. And uh, it's, uh, that's tr- quite an achievement, I think, to make that have that believability filter through. And it's really just driven through, I think, mainly by Richard Burton, who is someone who I've not really seen a lot of to my 
discredit for someone who does a film podcast, yeah. but in this film, at least, he is amazing. I've seen a number of films that Richard Burton has happened to be in. I've never watched a movie because Richard Burton was in it. He's never been one of my favourite actors, as well regarded as he is, but yeah, I'm kind of a Richard Burton fan after this mm. now, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna. The upshot of this is that I'm gonna go back and watch more Richard Burton movies, even ones that I've seen before, and maybe dis- dismissed them out of hand, uh, because this for me really was the film where I'm like, wow, I get it. Richard Burton really could mm. act. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much of it is <laughs> leaning into his uh, character. I mean, this is obviously a really cynical drunk that he's playing. I don't know if that is any oh. reflection on his character <laughs> at all. But quite autobiographical, <laughs> some of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of that, you know. undoubtedly uh, so. But also highlights the fact there's a reason why this. You know, Hollywood didn't come knocking on this this drunk Welsh bloke's door for no reason. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor saw something in him. What's weird about this film for me, though, is that Richard Burton's fantastic in it, right? The story is really good, especially the ending, too, because you're you're completely blindsided by that. Yeah. You're not expecting that at all. Mm-hmm. I don't like this film, and I cannot work out why. Really? Really, yeah. I really, really don't like it. I'm bored by it, quite frankly. Um, and that was when the first time I watched it a few years ago. I felt bored. I watched it again a couple of days ago and I think, I'm going to like this. And I was like, nope. It still bored me. And I can't work out why because everything about it I should like. I love slow burning stuff like that. I like John Le Carre's work. I think Richard Burton's excellent and I like the story. Mm-hmm. I just cannot get on with this film and I don't know why. That's all right. There's, you don't need to justify that. Sometimes you just don't click with something. No, um, no, 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 but it's just strange because I like the other Lacari stuff so much and there are similarities in the structure, the pacing. So the reason, the, the point at which I knew I was going to love this movie is when Richard Burton first meets uh, Claire Bloom's character, Nan Perry, in what has to be the world's most specific reference library. <laughs> it's about, this reference library is about the size of the room that I'm sitting in now. It has maybe three shelves. And I think, what is it he requests? He's, he's looking to file a book, and it's like, oh, yes, metamorphosis, but specifically under lycanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> like, right, but I'm on board. It has a lycanthropy section. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, okay, it's got, it's got Richard Burton hammering the scotch. Um, and it's got this, it's got this uber specific reference library. <laughs> I'm in. Whatever you've got to show me, I'm, I'm by, I'm going all in. Here we go. I'm putting my faith in you. And I, I was, I was rewarded richly. <laughs> oh dear. I think I'm, um, I kind of, I can see, I can see why actually, because there was a point in the first maybe 10, 15 minutes where I wasn't, I was kind of sitting in the fence a little bit, Drew, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the tipping point was, but at some point I kind of found myself engrossed and then bang, the credits were rolling and I thought, Jesus Christ, where did the last 90 minutes go? But I can kind of see that if you weren't fully engaged by that point, then I get it, um, but I, oh, I hope you go back and watch it again. I've already watched it twice and didn't like it either time, so right. I don't know, I might, but um, let's see, like, sort of rationally everything about it I should like but emotionally it never invested me mm. uh, but this, it's that, a sucker, ex- that sucker punch at the end though mm. um, like without spoiling anything uh, for a 51 year old film if you haven't seen it if you don't want I mean skip ahead a couple of minutes if, if you don't want anything spoiled for you but that point at the end at which um, Nan Perry uh, is shot trying to go over the wall and Richard Burton has the opportunity to make it over and he clearly just decides to hell with this, what have I got anyway? That's mm-hmm. every, everything I'd invested myself in and any hope I had of a normal life after this just slumped down on the other side of this wall dead. I'm going with her. Yeah. Uh, that really took me unawares because, you, as you said, Scott, that cynicism that runs through a lot of these films and the expendability of people, mm-hmm. you always assume that that cynicism is going to extend to 
the main character. And I think it's perhaps the only time in a film, whether it's been of this genre, whether it's been an adaptation of a novel or not, that I've seen that main character faced with that decision. And I automatically assumed he would just say, well, look, that's what happens. That's the game we're in. And rather than proceed with cynicism and just brush it off, as we've seen a million times in Bond movies, uh, you know, we've been conditioned just to accept that the, the good guys, if he is going to feel bad about it at all, is just kind of man up and get on with it. For this guy to decide, what is their past this anyway? I can't be bothered anymore. And just allow himself yeah. to be shot yeah. was really was really a sucker punch for me. I did not see that coming at all. Yeah, that had been exactly what I was going to talk about too and it's what Scott mentioned earlier too about sort of you not really knowing what's coming in this sort of film again with the stakes being lower too mm-hmm. that you can be completely blindsided by something like this that you, you're you not expecting a, the hero to do anything like this at all or yeah. for for that to have happened that the whole thing was a setup and the woman was expendable and they were always expecting her to die he yeah. never knew that and his he'd sort of he'd stopped being this great spy um, and not paying attention to stuff like that that he should have known and it's just it's it's, it's so well crafted it's a good story and it's kind of disappointed that I don't like it more but <laughs> mm. well the, the thing of it is as well I think we, you kind of should see it coming because when he's afforded the opportunity to undertake this mission at the start by his by his own boss he makes it very clear that look you know you can do this if you want I'm essentially going to be using you as a means to an end Mm-hmm. And Lemus undertakes that, so really the the signs are kind of there, but you still, I guess, it, whether it's conditioning or you know whatever it is, you still don't expect that. It's a movie, of course, you don't expect you know the hero to make such a, a ter- well, not a terrible decision. Clearly, it was the right decision for him <laughs> at the time. Um, you know, to make such a, a counterintuitive decision, uh, it really was. I'm surprised that a, a movie this old had the power to do that. That was something I hadn't seen before. Another pick now from our February 2016 intermission episode, which saw the review of a good number of films and a number of Oscar contenders at the time. And one of the most lauded and hyped films at the time was the Leonardo DiCaprio starring The Revenant. So let's see what that's all about. Okay then, so yet more awards bait. Once again, for Alejandro Gonzalez Inorito, this time... The Revenant. Right before I swear, any if I start speaking about the Revenant and using the word "pish" a lot, <laughs> Scott, maybe you could tell us a little about the Revenant. We are transported back to the 1820s, and a group of trappers, one of which is Leonardo DiCaprio's character Hugh Glass, who's kind of leading this exposition, at least in terms of the tracking and such like, is wandering around in the snowy wastes at which point they're come across by a bunch of Native Americans who launch a surprise attack and kill an awful lot of the group that was going there. The survivors include, of course, DiCaprio himself and you have Tom Hardy as John Fitzgerald, another trapper, Hugh Glass's son, who is Hawk, who also is half Native American, and Will Poulter as Jim Bridger, who's a, the youngest member of the party, and they're nominally led by Dom Hall Gleason's Andrew Hendry as the kind of captain of the party. So these guys escape and manage to shovel off downriver, but uh, soon more tragedies befall poor Hugh. He's scouting ahead when he's uh, mauled by a grizzly bear, Presley manages to take him with her, but uh, uh, he's left very badly wounded, and while the rest of the party, after trying to carry his... his not quite lifeless body back for some distance. They eventually decide that he's they're not going to be able to make it. They're not going to be able to escape the Native Americans who are tracking them unless they leave him to his fate. He's left behind with uh, Tom Hardy and Will Poulter and his son to kind of see him off and give him a proper burial, but uh, that 
goes a little bit astray when Tom Hardy's character decides he can't quite be bothered with this whole waiting nonsense and uh, engineers things to speed things up, uh, largely by killing Glass's son. And turns out he didn't do quite a good enough job. Uh, Hugh pulls himself out of his, his grave and somehow manages to convalesce and start start tracking down John Fitzgerald, Tom Hardy's character, with the thought of extracting vengeance upon him. I have very little to say about The Revenant. It's another film that was just there for mm. me. It sounds very much like you're going to rip into it and I'm tempted just to, to yield the floor to you. I thought it was okay, but I didn't think anything particularly much of it one way or the other, to be honest with you. Uh, it didn't really hold my attention particularly well. Sure, it's a it's a kind of an impressive tale of survival, I suppose, but it just didn't really make any real impact on me and I didn't really care an awful lot about any of it. Sounds like you may have some rather stronger views, so perhaps I'll let you get into it. Actually, to be honest, no. For the most part, I didn't care about it. I'm more slightly angry about everybody talking about Inuritu getting Best Director again, or it being Best Picture, Leonardo DiCaprio getting a Best Actor Oscar, and I keep thinking, why? Why would that be the case? Nothing happens in this film. Nobody <laughs> does anything, and then it ends. This film just didn't engage me at all. It's really boring. Nothing much of import happens at all. Leonardo DiCaprio has been talked up for actor and I like Leonardo DiCaprio a great deal and really I think he ought to have received an Oscar for The Wolf of Wall Street in which he's utterly fantastic. Yeah. In this film, it's not that he's not fantastic, he's got sod all to do. Yeah. He barely speaks, he just lies there for most of the film. Tom Hardy comes out of it a bit better but he does for a good 50% of the film sound like Buffalo Bill from Sounds of the Lambs in the way he speaks. <laughs> It was driving me crazy for a good half hour. I was like, why, who does he remind me of? Who does he remind me of? I don't know what it is. He's going to ask somebody to put the lotion on their skin in a moment. That's what it is. (laughs) I just simply didn't care about anything that was happening. I didn't care about any of the characters because there basically weren't any. There there are no characters in this film. It's what really irritated me about it, I think. For the rest of Mm. it, I simply wasn't engaged. But there there were no characters. There were just some men. And they're in the woods. And then there's a bear. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a bear. Yeah. I like, yeah. That's a whole story. I think you're supposed to be shocked by the things that happened to Leonardo DiCaprio, but he's not anybody you've got had any reason to care about before, up to that point. So why would you? No. Nobody, nobody, because apart from the fact that people barely speak in the film for most of it, Leonardo DiCaprio is just a person who's on screen along with some other people who are on screen, and the men have some some men with beards, and they're in the woods, and <laughs> then there's a bear. Okay. I like bears. I like the bear immediately because it's a bear. <laughs> but yeah, so just it's just a really, really boring film. That I mean, it it shot nicely. That's I mean the one thing you can maybe say for it. It's got nice photography. Um, mm-hmm. even though I questioned quite why some of the camera moves were what they were, but it's a pretty film. And then there's a bear. And to be honest, if there'd been more bears, maybe it'd be more exciting. But uh, <laughs> if Leonardo DiCaprio gets an Oscar for this, it'll be because he didn't get it for The Wolf of Wall Street and should have done. It'd be a make-a-good Oscar, yeah. which we've seen more than once <laughs> before. There isn't really a great deal of direction happening in the film. Nothing of anything important happens in the film at all. And I think it's kind of telling that the bits that I remember most are the bits that were driving me kind of crazy because they made no sense. Like It's like, nothing of the characters stuck with me, really, because they don't have any. But there is one point when Leonardo DiCaprio is absolutely starving and he finds a bison carcass that he's been sharing with a a Native American, and he eats bits of this bison raw when he's two feet away from a fire. And that's like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's my abiding memory of that. It's like, I didn't care that this cart had been starving. It's like, why is he not cooking it? There's a fire right there. 
So yes, that, that exercised me a bit and the rest of it just mostly just passed me by because I didn't care about anything or anybody in it. It's another one I was utterly baffled by the awards buzz for. There was nothing awards worthy for this. I can't for BC why you'd have DiCaprio as, as a, for a best actor. I mean, his performance in this is Grimace. Yeah. I mean, understandably why he would do that, but I mean, that's all he's doing for like, what, an hour and a half yeah, I mean, of this film is him grimacing. And it isn't, it genuinely isn't a criticism of Leonardo DiCaprio. He doesn't have anything to do. He doesn't have a character, right? And it's not even yeah. like, the big problem with the story is it's not even like you can say it's, it hasn't been directed. There's nothing to direct. Nothing happens. There's yeah. no story. So it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm getting a bit shrill here because I'm now, uh, okay, maybe I'm leaning into a wee bit of Scott. There was no story in this film. So there was no acting. There was no character. There was no direction to be done because nothing happens. And then there's a bear. I mean, certainly if you compare this to, I mean, his last film was Birdman, which you know you've got your issues with, but I mean, that had so much excitement and so much character back and forth. It had so much going on. It had lots of lovely little touches. And this, in comparison, is very static yeah. and very one note. And it doesn't really have anything that grabbed your attention. And it's at two hours, 36 minutes. It needs more oh, yeah, than this. But I mean, that is a very long sludge in the middle of that. this film. It's at least an hour to It's... To be honest with you, Scott, this film is actually an hour and a half too long. Yeah, <laughs> it's not far off, isn't yeah. it? Uh, um, when we discussed Birdman, I did mention it's like I like and also don't like Birdman, and I've never quite made up my mind. I've not seen it a second time yet, but I do want to. But Birdman is undeniably interesting. Now, whether you like yeah. it or not, that's a separate issue. But there's a lot going on there. The performances are definitely compelling and interesting. There's a story to it there's a lot going on there's things that are actually happening in that film none of which is the case with the revenant yeah there's there's no spark and no energy in the revenant no there's no there's Uh no anything in the revenant and then there's a bear i mean let's not minimize the bear that was a really good bit that was a good bit of bear action but the rest of the film not so much yeah i think i probably would be less annoyed about this if it hadn't been talked up about for awards again and not just because it's in your getting talked up for words because they're always never worthy um, but it's only been happening for years now but it's mm-hmm. just that every time it comes to this time it's why I, I hate the Oscars I just don't care about it I used to and I have no idea now why it's because they just keep giving stuff to the wrong people <laughs> and even if it was like just the wrong people they're giving it to maybe that wouldn't be so bad but it's the, the, the films they nominate and you're like but there's nothing in it why why <laughs> have you nominated this there's nothing here it's not like it's a Maybe something you'd like disagree on whether you think it's a good performance or a good story or something. There is no story. There is no performance. Leonardo DiCaprio for half the film is lying <laughs> unconscious. And there's a bear. And I keep going back to it because it's the only thing that has actually any life in it. So we, we're we nominating it for the Oscar for Best Bear. <laughs> but the rest of it, we're not, we're not so sold on. That's what we're saying there. That's about the size of it. And we will round things off today with a clip from our July... 2016 episode on disaster movies and in this one we're talking about the frankly laughable the swarm now scott you're a fan of the swarm don't lie you've got a soft spot for the swarm it is the best of films it is the worst of films (laughs) mainly it's the worst of films (laughs) Um, actually when his meteor was so bad it's bad the swarm is so bad it's good yes (laughs) there's a clear distinction this is this really only made the list in the last. I beg to differ. I think this only got back on list uh, because our friends at the Magic Lantern podcast, Erica, Erica Long, Long and Cole Relay. Uh, um, yes, Erica Long in particular mentioned that she was a, a fan of how terrible the swarm is, and so we put it on because 
Well, we have some history with the film um, from <laughs> oh, the days well, when we were running around in school doing Michael Caine impersonations ceaselessly. Yeah, that, this, that's of course, more or less one of them. the history, really. It's just <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so basically, we liked doing terrible Michael Caine impersonations. Uh, the Swarm is about, of course, as you might expect. Well, although it's, I don't, sorry, just uh, before you go, um, I hadn't seen the Swarm until just a few years ago for the first time. Really? Uh-huh, yeah. Oh, my it. God! Bees, bees, millions of bees! But one Echo of- one to base. Bees! Bees! <laughs> well, I was just so disappointed by them. Bees? was one of the... One of the lines... One of the lines you'd both been, like, quoting for years isn't even in the film, and I was devastated! Yeah, so this is perhaps where the wheels come off the genre African for a while. African killer bees. <laughs> We've been through fire, earth, water, and likes of airport take care of the fourth element, air as well. So the only choice for disaster then, obviously, is bees. bees. <laughs> An unlikely choice for the fifth element. The, in- the industrious worker bee, yes. albeit of the killer African variant. Yes, so Michael Caine steps up to combat the menace of the African killer bee, largely through the medium of shouting, <laughs> as, as top entomologist Brad Crane, who is... <laughs> Brad that's, <laughs> that's a stupid name for Michael Caine. My name is Brad. That's it. I'm Brad. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> and when I want to warn you about <laughs> the African killer bee. <laughs> so he's, he is found in a, in a somewhat unbelievable fashion in the middle of a missile silo, which has, <laughs> has recently been destroyed by bees. <laughs> and, uh, clearly, the work of bees. Uh, so Richard Woodmark's General Slater <laughs> shows up to investigate it, asking, asking Michael Caine if he's an American, with a response, yes, for the last eight years, he has been American. <laughs> Which, Which conveniently explains <laughs> away my reluctance to do an accent. <laughs> so a lot of the early running is uh, Brad trying to attempt to get the, the higher-ups, including the president, to believe that there is actually a swarm of African killer bees, and he's very insistent yeah. that they be called African killer bees. Uh, for some reason. Because um, <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't be worried about it. <laughs> it's very important. I must reiterate, they are killer. There's a subplot which is largely ignored towards the end where Widmark's not trusting Crane. He gets one of his subordinates to keep tabs on him. And I take this to mean that Widmark suspects that Crane is in league with the bees or is perhaps a bee in disguise. <laughs> What's he suggesting? He, he is a bee. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's where the line is. It's, it's all right, Widmark. I'm not a bee. <laughs> and so it goes with Crane and the assembled scientists trying to come up with ways to kill the bees without destroying everything around it where the bees for some reason, slowly buzz towards Houston, killing everything in their way, because this film has no idea what a bee is or what a bee does. <laughs> <laughs> but they're killer bees, they kill! So they're not in the business of making honey like regular bees. <laughs> What's especially annoying is at some point during this film, Crane gives a very impassioned plea that you shouldn't ascribe your human moralistic views to the ex- what a bee will do. And then it's, it's clear that the only explanation for anything that happens that the bees do is because it's been written by a human with no idea of what a bee does. Well, in fairness, it was originally about wasps. Uh, it's a search and replace. So, like, wasps aren't so hot right now. People are more into bees. Oh, all right, control F. Right. 
search for me in Wasp. There's, there's an almost believable bit at the start where what's happening is oh. they're, they're up in a hive and then someone disturbs the hive and they all, that's why they start going off in a swarm. But mm. everything after that... That's makes, a short movie. No sense after that because it's written by humans in a really ham-fisted way to make up the stakes, including causing an off-camera nuclear you, meltdown at a power yeah. plant. Are you, are you, are you suggesting are you it should be written by bees? Yes, exactly what I was going to ask. Are you advocating it should be written by bees? It glad you mentioned, have been any worse. I'm glad you mentioned the nuclear power station because it's absolutely my favourite bit of that film that they somehow cause an explosion at a nuclear power station by, as far as I can tell, irritating a man to flop over a console of buttons. <laughs> the self destruct button. <laughs> oh, no, any button but that one. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, so despite oh, the reason. So we should, in fact, thank our insect <laughs> brethren for um, <laughs> for showing up the design flaw of a nuclear power plant and then incorporates <laughs> a self destruct button. Oh, my days. Uh, aye, so despite a reasonable budget that's production values are of no value whatsoever, its special effects are in no way special, I think topping out with hallucinations of giant bees mm-hmm. that there's things apparently cause, which I'm sure is 100% scientifically accurate. Uh, but you, you don't think the special effects of having buckets full of freeze-dried bees being thrown from off camera <laughs> is amazing use of money? Uh, so, so, like, despite the nuclear meltdown, no meltdown for you on film, and nor when the order towards the end is given to burn Houston, are you getting any more than six boys running around in beekeeper outfits with flamethrowers? Sure, that'll work, because it's a very small place, Houston. I'm sure that's adequate to treat that particular scenario. Uh, and it's good that the bees can't fly anywhere. <laughs> no, it's glad that they can be glad that they've got no means of escape. <laughs> So, I mean, I guess Michael Caine is treating this with the contempt that it deserves, but um, it's all very much a low point in his career. There's a lot of films that we've talked about where the dialogue's terrible. This this is the worst. <laughs> but I think, at the same time, the best. Yes. Oh, my God! Uh, oh, yeah. me, I need to put that back as a message alert on my phone. <laughs> I haven't had that for a few years now. The um, only other thing I really, re- I said, I don't remember much about this film. For, I think it's just fortunate. Um, it's mm. probably I, I've saved myself here. The I think it's probably a nuclear power plant, but the the coloured suits they wear just made me think of an Intel advert every day when I saw them. Remember those Intel adverts where they play that funky music? Yeah. White man and all was like, oh, right. yeah, 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 like yeah. looked exactly like that, but from like twenty years earlier. <laughs> yes, this film is hot garbage of the lowest order, but <laughs> it, it's actually the sort of film that I think everyone should see once. Even if you're not normally the person who subscribes to ironically watching yeah. bad films, yeah. very much this, the, this really does deserve to be seen on yeah. that basis. It's very essential. Much in the way it's important movie. that we teach our children about the Holocaust, even <laughs> these days. You know, uh, I know I disagreed uh, earlier, but thinking back, it's actually it's, it's one of those films. Probably is really so bad it's good. It's like, <laughs> you can sort of farce watch this thing. <laughs> Special anti thanks to whatever clown decided that home releases should be two and a half hours long rather than the cinematic cut of like 116 minutes. Which is itself 115 minutes too long. <laughs> what are the differences between the home release and the cinematic print? I assume it's much worse because there's more of it. <laughs> I didn't look for a video cut list, no. What this film needs us to be fleshed out a bit more. We need to understand the bees character a bit more. <laughs> we need this a bit is- of backstory behind the bees. <laughs> What's the motivation? Maybe we see some some young bees who are normally in straight and narrow, but get cultivated by some. That's right. Thuggish older bees. We need to see how the bees are radicalized. 
Oh, my days. Oh, I've really enjoyed talking about the swarm. African killer bees, Black Watch. (laughs) (laughs) It's much more enjoyable to talk about than watch. (laughs) So that brings us to the end of this little episode. I hope you found something to enjoy in there. Hopefully something you've not heard before. If any of that piqued your interest, you can certainly go back to our website, fuzzonfilm.com. Take a look back through the archives and see if there's anything there you'd like to download or just consult the previous episodes on your podcasting software of choice. We should be back to our regularly scheduled podcast soon, so stay tuned for that. If you have any inclination to contact us about anything you've heard today or anything else, hit us up on the social medias. That's facebook.com slash fudsonfilm, twitter.com slash fudsonfilm, or you can even just email us. That's podcast at fudsonfilm.com. So, I've been Scott Morris, and until next time, take care, we'll see you down the line.